arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I remember a movie when I was a kid called Invaders from Mars. What was scary about that was waiting for those invaders to show up. They were on the planet Earth, but people were waiting for them to show up. And the one thing they did to take over the humans was they had this long needle, which supposedly they, you know, put in the back of people's necks. And just the thought of that was enough to hide under the chair. I hope I accomplished with the sound of the monkeys a similar thing. They are lurking out there. Andy's mission is to prevent Professor Geiger's death at the New York World's Fair. Complications from the monkeys and his increasing feelings for Lucy may divert or stop his mission. Andy immediately senses the contrast between the all-encompassing monkeys in the future and the freedom prevailing in the United States in the third decade of the 20th century. There is no one constantly spying on him as in the future are punitive measures for the slightest infraction. Join me for episode three of I Have Seen the Future. I Have Seen the Future, Chapter 10. More metal pedestal fans transform the heavy air into lighter and cooler currents. Below the retracted basketball backboard and under the ever-present glare of Hobart in full brown uniform, Andy nibbled on tuna fish sandwich halves and crunched potato chips. He maintained an inconspicuous presence at the punch bowl. Lucy Appel's eyes drifted as she listened to a tall, shallow-faced kid with a snooty voice. As soon as another student arrived and hit the tall boy on the shoulder, Lucy scooted over to her girlfriends across the gym. Townspeople would occasionally stop by, shake her hand, and offer a few words. Within the crowd, the solid-framed man with the bristly chestnut mustache accompanied a thin woman with peppered hair, wearing a gray and wildflowered dress, and they spoke to Dom and his wife. Dom pointed toward Andy, and the man glanced over as Andy bit into another tuna fish sandwich. Across the gym, Lucy pontificated, gesturing with her hands toward two women, probably her teachers, also dressed in caps and gowns. Then she meandered toward the door. Andy gripped his punch glass as the two agents blocked her in the doorway. They grabbed her elbows and led her outside. He set down the glass and sprinted across the squeaky floorboards. He stuck his head around the brick wall. Lucy's confused expression near the stage turned fearful as the men loudly badgered her. Maybe they were questioning her about mentioning Geiger in her essay. Her broad-shouldered father passed Andy through the gym door. Then he broke into a trot and pointed his finger. You get away from my daughter, mister. Andy followed up the aisle. The younger man flipped identification. He had a slight accent. Sir, we have legal rights to be here. We are agents from naval intelligence. Lucy's father's fists tightened. Iowa is a long way from the Navy, buddy. The agent with the gray wispy hair and wide suspenders continuously jabbed his finger. He spoke with a strong yet unknown accent. 
The cords in Mr. Appel's neck protruded through his tightened skin. Andy stood around Fibro's back along the empty wooden chairs. You'd better understand, said the younger agent. He sounded cocky and self-assured. War is on the horizon in Europe. Our division is concerned with readiness, naval intelligence, mobilization, organization, and personal needs. Don't you read the newspapers? asked the older guy. I know about war, and I don't take kindly to browbeating, said Mr. Rappel in a clear, well-enunciated voice. He adjusted his wide paisley maroon tie. My daughter responded to a contest offered by the president of the New York World's Fair. The older guy fingered his chest. She is on thin ice, Appel. Why don't you head back east where you came from, mister? Are you the one snooping on my property? We just got into town, said the older man. You're a liar. Where's Hobart? asked the woman with wire-rimmed glasses. Andy slid along the front row of chairs. Lucy gave him a frightful stare, but her head snapped to the left as the agent scolded her father. Your daughter has corresponded with a German national. Since when is that a crime? Professor Geiger left Germany because of differences with Hitler. My letters to Professor Geiger relate to his books and theories. Geiger is a social activist and may even be a communist, said the younger agent. He defied the Fuhrer. He's not a communist, nor is he a Nazi, replied Lucy. That's just not true. Are you privy to a report on this man, young lady? Asked the older guy in a heavy accent. I wrote to him three times, that's all. We could take you in right now, said the younger agent. It's time you answered some questions. Her father's dark eyes ignited. He shoved the young man hard enough to send him tumbling onto the stage. The older guy grabbed his shirt and swung his fist into Appel's jaw, knocking him to the grass. Lucy rushed to her father. Leave my father alone! The two sons threw punches but were easily flattened. One of them bled from the eye. You're coming with us. You will answer questions for the record. You hit my father and brothers! When the younger agent grabbed Lucy's arm, Andy shot out of the chair and leaped through the air. The heel of his foot connected to the agent's side just below the ribs and pushed the air from his lungs. He smacked the guy with several quick leg thrusts. The older man produced a gun from under his coat, but Andy quickly kicked it across the stage, and the agent grabbed his wrist. The younger agent hunched over on the floor, held his ribs, and winced as he shuffled back. Japanese self-defense! I need my gun, said the older man. People gathered in the aisle and moved outside from the gym. Time to leave town, hotshot, said Andy. Appel sat up in his daughter's arms. The older agent, steadying himself on one of the wood chairs, pointed at Andy. You have attacked two naval intelligence agents. You want to discuss that with the local police over here, Andy warned as he searched for Hobart. I don't think they'll be too keen on you two harassing townspeople from here in Hancock. Neither man said anything. The older guy, still holding his wrist, helped the younger man to his feet. Then he stepped slowly on the stage and retrieved his gun. He stuck it under his suit coat. Andy extended his hands in a slow, circular motion as he crept forward. With fearful expressions, the two men retreated down the center aisle and backtracked into the street. Andy ran toward the road as the two men headed down the street at a rapid clip and got inside the sedan. Several seconds later, the car sped away with the tires screeching.
Andy wondered, as the automobile disappeared out of town, why they did not arrest him. Her father stood on his feet when Andy returned to Lucy. I'm all right, folks, I'm all right, said John as he wiggled his jaw. Then he faced Andy. I've never seen anything like that. Where did you learn to fight like that, son? Lucy stared at Andy with a dumbfounded look that evolved into a wide smile. Yeah, you mopped the floor with him, said her brother. The lady, probably his wife, wiped blood off her son's brow. Andy turned back. Well, I've had some instruction. You need to call your local police chief, that, that guy Hobart. Hobart? asked her father, laughing as he rubbed his chin. He, he couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. Dad and Hobart don't always get along, said Lucy as she shook Andy's hand. She had smooth, warm skin. Thank you for getting rid of those men. Well, bullies always get what they deserve, said Andy. Lucy held his hand for the longest time and stared into his eyes. She withdrew quickly when she realized she still had her hand wrapped around his hand. With a firm, tough grip, her father squeezed Andy's hand. I'm John Appel, and I think you just beat up my two trespassers. I'm Andy Reese. He squinted. Trespassers? Trespassers who have been on my property since this contest thing happened. He held his jar again. Well, he packed a wallop, son. But Mr. Reese packed a bigger wallop, said Lucy. John tightened his brow. Your fighting skills are impressive, Mr. Reese. Real impressive. Well, he had it coming. Dad, Mr. Reese is the kind of help we need. By the way, I'm Lucy Appel. She shook his hand and held it again. I know. You do? Well, you gave that wonderful speech. Oh, she said, releasing her grip. Mr. Reese, said John, touching his jaw again. John, you need some ice on that jaw, said Mrs. Appel. John shook his head and stepped closer to Andy. We need protection. Those trespassers have been stalking my farm and Lucy here in town. I don't know who they are, and Hobart is as useless as... Well, he's useless. I'm afraid Lucy's essay has stirred things up. What do you do, Mr. Reese? asked Lucy. Her eyes were dark enough to blend in with her pupils. I'm a writer, among other things. I've actually come back to ask you if I could chronicle Lucy's trip to New York. I read her essay in the paper back in New York. Okay, you're the guy in the barbershop. Dom mentioned you were a writer. John studied Andy. I don't know if I want any more coverage of Lucy's opinions. Like I said, things have gotten crazy since that essay was published. Again, I've had trespasses on my property, and here in town, people are following my daughter. Right, Lucy? Strangers, said Lucy. She pursed her lips, and her dark eyes had a subtle but expressive quality. Well, said Andy, smiling, I can assure you I'm not a trespasser nor a stalker, just a man who chronicles things. No, I don't think that for a minute, said John. I'm grateful to you, Mr. Reese, but I just don't want any more publicity for Lucy. Where are you from, Andy? asked Lucy as she walked next to him back to the gym. New York, Rochester, New York. Oh, then you've seen New York City, she asked with an atypical naivete. No, I live farther upstate. Then he faced her. I thought it was great the way you won that contest, Miss Appel. That essay was brilliant. Why, thank you, she said, shining an imaginary apple on her chest. John Appel placed his hand on Andy's shoulder. Please stay with us into the gym, Mr. Reese. If the radio signal is good, FDR's fireside chat is being broadcast at 8.30 in the gym, and I want to talk to you. Roosevelt, 
That's incredible, replied Andy. As they walked, Lucy still next to him, Hobart entered the gym. He stumbled between the chairs. Ah, Hobart, right on time. John, somebody said that you were cold-cocked. He attempted to pull his gun from his holster. John shook his head. Hobart, I think there's probably some traffic out there you can direct. Lucy contained her giggling and briefly touched Andy's shoulder as she positioned herself away from Hobart. Andy grinned, which upset the wrinkle-faced Hobart all the more, but he wondered as they walked along the chairs toward the gym doorway whether the agents would return or if this attack would prompt a more extensive investigation. He was flummoxed by the fact they never arrested him. Something was not right. Well, I'll get on this right away, said Hobart from behind as his police hat fell to the floor. Oh, yeah, you do that, Hobart. Lucy laughed heartily enough for tears to form in her eyes. She held on to Andy as Hobart bounced toward the gym door. Now she had Andy smiling. He has a unique style. Like an elephant, replied Lucy as she laughed. Lucy, please. Lucy wiped her eyes but still smiled. John walked over from a walnut wood veneer radio with a glowing yellow dial and a maroon fabric covering the speaker. Hush, hush, the president is about to speak. Lucy admitted a few more giggles as they all moved together. A crude microphone had been placed next to the radio's maroon speaker as the sharp voice announcer designated a Chicago station's call letters. Then a second voice, probably from the network, soon echoed throughout the gym. The radio address of the president, broadcast from the White House. Lucy raised her dark brows at Andy and lip-smiled. The next voice was both reassuring and commanding. A crowd of both young and old had gathered around the radio. My friends, I think the American public and the American newspapers are certainly creatures of habit. This is one of the warmest evenings I have ever felt in Washington, D.C. Yet this talk tonight will be referred to as a fireside talk. Lucy whispered in his ear as Roosevelt's words filled the gym. Radio has such great power, Andy. This man has a compelling delivery. Man, that's FDR. Right. She yanked him back and put her hand on his forearm. FDR is a charismatic speaker and leader, but he would not be able to do what he does and lead the way he does without that radio. You sound like you're giving a speech, he whispered back. I'm always giving my speech, she said with a puffy laugh. Have you read Professor Geiger, Mr. Reese? Andy's stomach tingled and he lowered his voice. A little, yes. What Professor Geiger says relates to technology. We all have to think. FDR gives a speech and it's a big deal, said Andy. You mean New Deal, she said with a grin. I don't get it. You're kidding, right? Did I say something funny? Then she placed her hand next to his ear and whispered, You're a kidder, Mr. Reese. I don't doubt the president has important things to say. The human tendency is just to accept the authority because of the technology, because we hear him on the radio. Do you understand? He whispered back, Unfortunately, I do. The president's chat continued inside, and she stood close enough for Andy to sense her perfume. Her short dark hair contrasted nicely with her white graduation robe. The top of her head reached to his shoulder. And a substantial number of additional judgeships have been created.
created in order to expedite the trial of cases, and finally greater flexibility has been added to the federal judicial system by allowing judges to be assigned to congested districts. Did you hear what he said? To add to the Supreme Court? FDR knows what he's doing, Lucy, said John. Dad loves FDR. She pulled Andy back to the doorway. Andy found himself immediately liking her. Dad is wrong. FBR did want to pack the court. Someday somebody is going to come along and sell a whole bill of goods and everyone will buy it. The country needs Roosevelt now, but believe me, people have to think. You speak beyond your years, Lucy. She lowered her voice again and pressed her lips before she spoke. No, just think. Andy looked back at the radio, stunned, because he felt as if he had known her for years. Lucy retreated inside the school for photographs. Andy stood with John Appel outside the gym door as FDR's voice reverberated inside. John, holding Lucy's diploma, nudged his ribs. That man saved my farm, FDR and Henry Wallace. I'll vote for him as long as he wants to run. Andy grinned. Roosevelt sounded as if he were ending his talk. John instructed Andy to wait at the door. He headed inside and talked to his wife as the crowd filed by Andy at the entrance. Mrs. Appel raised her hand to her mouth when John pointed to the outside door and thrust his leg out. She nodded, and John escorted her to the doorway. Mr. Reese, this is my wife, Mavis. Mrs. Appel, pleasure to meet you. She had peppered short hair and dark eyes and seemed smaller behind her wire-rimmed glasses. Her frame was more slender than Lucy, even though she was about the same height as her daughter. Thank you so much for helping John and the boys. I can't believe the nerve of those men. There's been so much trouble since Lucy won that contest. Lord have mercy on us all. Well, it sounds that way, said Andy. Well, that's what I want to speak to you about, said John. I can size a man up, and you're okay. I want you to stay with us at the farm for the next week or so. You can write what you want, although I'd appreciate it if you didn't publish it right now. And I want you to accompany us to the fair, if you have the time to spare. Andy smiled. I don't know what to say. I'll pay you a small stipend and we can feed you, Mr. Reese, and get you into the fair. I want my daughter safe, even in New York. You just demonstrated you can keep Lucy safe. What do you say? Well, that's all I wanted in the first place. John held his forearm tightly. I just want to make sure that no one hurts my daughter. But I haven't even given you references, said Andy. References mean nothing. You can get anyone to say anything. I prefer to judge a man on what he is as a man. What do you say? I'll make sure she's safe. I promise you that. Good. Then you'll do it? Asked Mrs. Appel. Yes. John shook his hand and exposed his straight but tainted teeth. Good. I can't wait to tell that loudmouth Hobart he's staying in Iowa. Now, John, Hobart always has been a little, well, jumpy, said Mrs. Appel. He doesn't know when to stop, said John, looking outside. And look what just happened. Hobart shows up when it's all over. Well, Ned is bringing up the truck. At least it's not that hot rod of Harley's. Well, it's not a hot rod, Mavis. So he says, John. She turned to Andy. Where are you staying now, Mr. Reese? Andy, and I just got into town this afternoon. 
Oh, well, get your bags, then, said Mrs. Appel. We have room in the side house. He visualized the monkeys entering the Transformers. I had a uh, mishap. My bags were lost. Ah, the stupid railroads, said John. Boys have extra clothes, said Mrs. Appel. Lucy stood with some of her friends back at the entrance. Her eyes were set on Andy as she whirled back through the maze of people. They took a picture for the paper, she said to her mother. Well, we'll have to order more copies. Lucy, I have some good news, said John. Mr. Reese has agreed to accompany us to New York, and it's bye-bye to Hobart. Lucy's face beamed. Well, that is good news. We won't have to worry about Hobart's nonsense, and for the first time, I must say, I feel as if we have protection, said John, slapping Andy on the shoulder. Lucy smiled and also slapped Andy on the shoulder. Then she spoke with a sarcasm beyond her years. Welcome aboard! Andy appreciated the humor. To be serious, those men who were just here, they had no right to harass Lucy as they did. Well, you're damn right they didn't, said John. Damn right, said Lucy. Lucy, said her mother, watch your language. Like father, like daughter. I can handle the dams, young lady, said John as he motioned them forward. Come with us, Mr. Reese, said Mrs. Appel as they moved him along the chairs. Andy stared at the empty space across the street where the two men had parked the sedan. A loud red Ford pickup with a short wood frame bed stopped at the curb. Lucy hopped inside the cab next to her brother, a teenage kid, also with dark hair. He wore a white shirt and red paisley tie. I'll ride with you, Mavis, in Harley's car, said John. I'm not riding in that, that machine. She returned to the truck. John shrugged his shoulders. Women, come on, Andy. At the car window, Harley leaned over. You should fight Joe Lewis. He's going to New York with us. Andy Reese, this is my son, Harley. Harley had dark eyes like Lucy and his mother, but scruffy blonde hair. Andy, you are good. Thanks from all of us. Well, they deserved it, said Andy. He slid inside, wedged between Harley and John. He extended his arms along the back of the seat as Harley shifted and nudged near the truck's bumper. Lucy turned in the cab. Keep your distance on the highway there, hotshot, said John. Yes, sir. The wide contours of his face resembled John, but his eyes were dark. Once Ned moved the truck forward, Harley maintained at least a three-car length distance. Lucy would occasionally turn and check Harley's car. You one of those Chinese kickers, Mr. Reese? A martial arts practitioner. Oh! The car hummed past Dom's barbershop down Main Street. A hundred yards ahead, Harley downshifted and banked left where the pavement ended. Lucy, Ned, and Mrs. Appel, in the headlight glare, held the wood slats as the truck bounced down the dirt road. Like tall, silhouetted, silent soldiers, battalions of cornstalks lined the road. John twisted his lips. You boys are going to have to run this farm while we're in New York. Oh, don't worry, Dad. We have Porky. That is exactly why I worry. John tapped Andy's arm. I was telling my wife, we won't need a shotgun around with you on the property, Andy. That was quite a display. Shotgun? asked Andy. John and Harley exchanged quick glances. Yeah. Lucy and Mrs. Appel are nervous about it. Dad fired at two guys last month, said Harley, gripping the wheel with one hand. He popped the clutch and moved the column shift with the other hand. They were back again last week. Near the side house. Could be those guys back at the school, said Harley. Out of town is no offense, Andy. 
That's okay. Had the monkeys actually entered human bodies? Why were they on your property? My question exactly. I called out to them. They just stood there, said Harley, turning at the corner. They were too far away to get a good look at them. At the bottom of a long cornfield slope, the wide tapering trees and unpainted barns surrounded a white house with a long porch. Barbed wire followed a gray wood fence around the yard. They didn't fire until Dad fired the gun in the air. John banged his fist on the dash. I don't take kindly to two things, Andy. Men who don't give a full day's work. Well, what about Porky? asked Harley. Porky excluded. And anyone who threatens my family is my enemy. Lucy says there were Nazis who were after Geiger back east, said Harley. Well, Lucy has an imagination. That Geiger put too many ideas in her head. Andy, I'm counting on your fighting skills if anyone shows up now or in New York City, said John as they passed through the open front gate. So you keep an eye out. Oh, I will, he said. Harley's foot hit the brake pedal. The hot rod kicked up the dirt. Andy did not see telephone poles or electrical lines along the road. He smiled and shook his head. Well, what's so funny? asked John. I just realized you don't have power out here. Well, this ain't the big city, Andy. It's coming soon, said Harley, like the dark ages out here. John leaned over to Andy. I've lived 52 years without electricity. I'd like to be able to listen to Fibber McGee, said Harley. Well, look what radio did with that War of the World. You heard Lucy's speech, said John as the truck stopped under the tree branches. War of the Worlds, said Harley. I didn't believe it. Well, I did for a while. We were at the Higgins' house when Lucy was at the dance with Brucey Benson. Andy ran his tongue along the inside of his mouth and creased his brow. Huge, convoluted, white-orange, cumulus clouds hung over the farmhouse trees. Lucy had removed her cap and gown and leaped out of the truck. He wondered about her importance in time. A soft pink glow tinted her rounded face and tiny nose. Andy stepped onto the dirt driveway. The peepers, chirping, inundated the night within a strong, acrid farm stench, alternately pulsing light in the encroaching darkness. There, John, said Andy, now you have power. Hopefully the monkeys were not in the power grid. Well, bugs won't run radios, said Harley. Mrs. Appel carried Lucy's cap and gown up the front porch steps. Do these go back to Mrs. Dillon, Lucy, dear? Yes, Mom. Lucy spun around and trotted toward Harley's car. She had inherited her father's wider frame and her mother's dark eyes and hair. With her hands on her hips, she faced Andy. So, you really want to write about me, Mr. Reese? Well, it would appear that my primary job is protecting you. She smiled slightly, but I would love to hear your opinions and write about your adventure, Miss Appel. Oh, you can call me Lucy. She repeatedly looked him in the eye and romped alongside him as they followed the rest of the family toward the porch. Everyone calls me Lucy. Well, only if you call me Andy. Yes, Mr. Reese. On the porch, John struck a long wood match on the clapboard. He touched an oil lamp wick and brought the lamp in the house. Ned and Harley quickly lit the inside lamps. The high ceiling, yellow striped wallpaper, and lace curtains materialized in a wavy amber light. A sooty odor and a hint of the evening supper were still in the stuffy air. Mrs. Appel turned near the kitchen. 
Lucy, would you be so kind as to make the extra bed in the side house? Sure, Mom. Ned, you go out there with her, said John. I thank you both for this opportunity, said Andy. No, no, I feel like we can finally rest easier, said John. Maybe he'll place that shotgun back in the cabinet, said Lucy from the back porch. Lucy, scat, said her mother. Her voice faded across the yard. John put his arm around Andy and walked him into the parlor. He again struck a match on the door frame, and a yellow flame ignited from the oil lamp hung on the blue-flowered wallpaper. Have a seat, Andy. Thank you, sir. John removed a cigar from a box on the table. I'd offer you a cigar, but you're too young to be smoking. How old are you? Well, I'll be 22 next month. When my sister... Oh, look, I'm a cynical man, Andy. You could be Joe Blow or Joe Stalin, for all I know. And I have two reasons for accepting your offer. I told you, I can size up a man pretty quick. Secondly, I'm deadly serious when I tell you I've never seen anyone fight like you did back at the school. I have intruders on my property, and Lucy thought she was being followed a number of times during the last couple of weeks. Hobart has poo-pooed it all. What were you going to say? Andy swallowed. Well, I left New York because my sister just died. Oh, I'm sorry, said John, and his eyes filled. Listen, we can talk later. He patted Andy on the shoulder. Sometimes these things take time, Andy. We leave for New York City in the truck a week from tomorrow. My sister Charlotte has a place in Credwell, New Jersey. We'll be staying there while we're at the fair. The boys and Porky will work the farm. Is Lucy going to school? asked Andy. Most girls out here, Andy, get married and have kids. He brought the cigar up and puffed again as he kept it between his teeth. In a way, I'm glad she'll be gone for a while and away from Brucie, the boyfriend. John shook his head and ripped the cigar from his mouth. Lucy talks about things I don't understand, but she's a little naive with Brucey Benson. He says what you want him to say. I can't stand the kid. Anyway, you watch Lucy here and back east. You'll get room and board and later the story if you need to write it. He said as he turned at the door. I'm sorry about your sister. Time will heal it, Mr. Appel. It's John, and we have an agreement, right, Andy? Right, John. Andy grasped his extended firm hand. We have an agreement. I have seen the future. Chapter 11. The floor creaked under the kitchen's worn blue marble linoleum. Dim strokes of light strayed onto the busy brown and beige wallpaper. The faint smell of smoked bacon lingered in the stuffy night air. Mrs. Appel escorted Andy past a worn wood table and chairs, and they exited through the white frame screen door. Andy's eyes quickly adjusted to the gray-shaded tree branches and barn outlines. Glowing yellow oil lamps burned in a small white ranch house sandwiched between the corral and the gambrel-roofed barn. Andy tracked the stars in the night sky between Cygnus to Hercules. So, Andy, you're a writer. I think I know more about the stars, but I am a writer, yes. Who's your favorite? Well, I study the stars. You mean Gable and Gary Cooper? No, 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 he said, pointing upward. Oh, the stars. <laughs> she had a soft giggle, but did not seem to take herself too seriously. Excuse me, I, I get it. Andy grinned as they moved across the barnyard dirt. 
An occasional pig grunt from the pen near the barn broke the silence in the pungent evening air. A faint and low-pitched whistle sounded over the darking fields with the approach of a train. Down the hill they neared a long wood building with windows illuminated by more oil lamps. You know, I'm a little reluctant for Lucy to be getting all this praise showered upon her. You know, winning the World's Fair contest. Things have gotten tense here since that happened. Andy nodded as she opened the side house's screen door. Lucy's contagious laugh drifted outside with what sounded like a muffled engine motor. Sounds like your daughter likes to laugh. She does. Among her other talents, my daughter seems to challenge everything. Andy stopped before they got to the door. I think she'll be just fine. This fair thing should be an experience. I keep telling John I need a camera to remember it all. Camera? But we can't afford it. Do you own a camera? Film camera? The only one I want is the New York World's Fair baby brownie camera. My sister Myra in Minnesota has a Kodak brownie. Andy once owned a chemical film camera as a boy, but his plugs housed all his present images, and his plugs sat at the bottom of some trash barrel in Des Moines. I guess not. I own a camera, but it isn't here. She held his wrist before they went inside. This man, Professor Geiger, Andy, he and Lucy have corresponded. See, he's from Germany, and now... John says that's why the agents from the government were questioning Lucy and pressuring him after the graduation. Or at least they were until you stepped in. I don't want to get you in trouble either. Andy held her hand. Mrs. Appel, I think they thought they could come into a rural town and just harass Lucy. They know she's done nothing wrong, and I don't think they'll be back. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. But these people have been on the property, too. Trespassers. None of this started until Lucy won the essay contest. Then I'm glad I'm here. Come on, let's go inside. She twisted her lips and walked onto the red and green braided rugs. The place had a sweet woody smell. Ned helped Lucy tuck in the sheets on the front room cot. Holding a blue quilt and grinning, Lucy crossed the room. A persistent, revving clatter emanated from one of the back rooms. I don't think you'll be needing this quilt tonight with the heat, Mr. Reese. It does get warm in Iowa. Only if you're not from Iowa, she said. Can I see what you've written? Writing is something I like to do. I always keep a journal. I would if I could. I'm afraid I'll have to purchase more supplies as well as my clothes. My belongings are missing. Sorry to hear about your baggage, said Mrs. Appel. Lucy, what was all that laughing about? Porky, the steam engine! The steam engine, said Ned, gesturing toward the continuous buzzing in the back bedroom. Those sure are odd shoes, though, said Ned. He had Lucy's eyes, straight dark hair, and a wide face, but he was taller. After a few seconds, he stooped and squinted at Andy's shoes. They comfortable? Yeah. Well, you tell me the address of that company. I'll write and I'll get a pair. How much will it cost me? I got these for about 60... 60 cents? That's worth it. Yep. They're very comfortable. Lucy turned to the edge of the cot. Heck, Nettie, it cost 75 cents to get into the fair. She leaned over and pretended to hold a cigar between her fingers. Of course, Andy will have to cough up the change, she said in a New York City accent. You'll have to appreciate my sister's sense of humor, Mr. Reese, said Ned. She's always clowning around. I guess we all need a good sense of humor. In many ways, Lucy's attitude reminded him of Mariah when she was well. How did you find out about the contest anyways, Mr. Reese? asked Ned. He read it in the paper way out in New York, right, Andy? asked Lucy. Poured water from a metal pitcher into a clear glass. 
Anybody else want water? She asked. Don't waste it. We don't want the well to go dry again, said Mrs. Appel. Well, I hope those days don't come back, Ma, said Ned. Well, well, said Lucy, smacking her lips after drinking the water. Lucy, please, said her mother. That's rude behavior. How did you enter the contest, Lucy? asked Ned. Well, it's like this, Nettie. I've always been a girl looking to the future, and I wanted a free pass to the World's Fair. Lucy wants to fly to the moon, said Ned. No, I said I want to be there when they step on the moon, Nettie. Well, you won't live that long, replied Ned. It'll probably be Germany. I heard they have a secret base where they test all their rockets, according to Professor Geiger. How does he know that? asked Andy. He wrote me because I told him I had read the rocket into interplanetary space by Herman Oberth. You're incredible. How many 17-year-olds are reading books on rockets? I have a letter from Professor Goddard also. She's always writing letters, said Mrs. Appel. Andy shook his head and grinned at her. So, for winning the essay contest, you got a pass for your entire family. Yup. And whoever tags along. She put her arm around her lanky brother. See, Nettie, I planned it well. A few chosen words, a smattering of prescient thoughts. What the Sam Hill does that mean? asked Ned. Looking ahead, said Andy. Lucy, you are so full of it, added Ned as he pushed the screen door, walking on the moon. Now I've heard it all. Lucy cupped her hand and called out as the door slammed. Nettie, I will call you personally when man walks on the moon. Lucy, you're awake, Porky, said Mrs. Appel. They really do like each other, Mr. Reese. Lucy finished the glass of water and set it on the red checkered tablecloth. Ned is smarter than he thinks he is, smarter than Harley. Now, Lucy, don't be comparing your brothers, said her mother. Harley is a workhorse. Yes, she said, turning to Andy. Everyone has their own redeeming values. And, she said, raising her finger, the ability to face the future with responsibility and prudence. You sound like Professor Geiger, said Andy. Well, it's true. Look at Promontory Point. What do you mean? May 10th, 1869, two railroads, the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific. They met right there. See, no one questioned it, except the Indians. And look what happened to them. People are so gung-ho for the next invention, and so am I. I just think that no one considers the implications of any advancement. Look, it killed all the buffalo. Well, that's true, said Andy. Lucy held his wrist. Of course it is. Do you like to play Monopoly, Mr. Reese? You'll have to teach me. He's kidding, of course. She smiled, kissed her mother, and headed out the screen door. Good night to all, and to all a good night. She disappeared into the barnyard shadows and reemerged a few moments later at the farmhouse's kitchen door up the hill. He smiled at Mrs. Appel as the buzz snoring continued in the back room. You have quite a daughter. Well, she's always been a handful. Intelligent. Oh, always looking into things, said Mrs. Appel as she straightened the sheets and fluffed the pillow. Had to know about everything, how it worked. When she was five years old, she had John's gold watch apart on the table. Really? May the watch rest in peace. She took it apart and it's sitting in my dresser drawer. He glanced toward the back room. That noise. Mrs. Appel broke into a full smile and laughed. She adjusted her glasses. Why, that's... That's Porky. He's John's old friend, and he works here on the farm. 
I can make room for you at the house, Mr. Reese. No, no, this is fine. She tucked the handkerchief in her pocket. And I think John's will fit you until you find your things. Well, I insist on helping you here, earning my keep. That is most commendable, thank you. Not an easy life on the farm, but then again, in a week, we'll be on our way to New York City, or I should say New Jersey, and John's sister's house. We can't leave the farm season too long, but I reiterate my husband's concerns. Watch my daughter, Mr. Reese. Keep Lucy safe. Promise me that. The two government agents came to mind as he swallowed, but the enclave's warning about the monkeys shook him. I promise. I'll keep her safe. Porky's snoring cranked like an unrelenting piston in the night. The humid air rustled the leaves and stirred the barnyard smells. Andy leaned his elbows along the corral boards and panned up toward Jupiter, a steady, bright pinpoint in the night sky. The enclave were not on Ganymede in this time period, but they would find sanctuary on that Jovian moon hundreds of years from now. He had accepted he had arrived back in 1939, at the moment he materialized on the Des Moines street. Making sense of his challenge was a more formidable task. Why was the Enclave so sure of the alternative history? Although Andy had committed himself to accompanying the Appels to New York City, he was becoming increasingly unsure how he would prevent Geiger's death at the fair. Andy? called Lucy, the screen door shut, and she trekked along the side house. In the dim light, she carried some folded clothes, a couple of letters, and paper. I didn't see you inside. Oh, I'm just enjoying the stars and the smells. She, too, looks skyward. Edwin Hubble says the stars are moving away at high speeds. Andy raised his brows and placed his hands on his hips. You are quite precocious, you know that? That is exactly what killed the steady-state theories. I read about that, how the universe is static. Well, it isn't, said Andy. See, you are precocious. Who, me? She asked and smiled. Andy sniffed the pungent night odors. The hogs leave their signature. Oh, maybe you haven't bathed. Very funny. I was born to it here, Mr. Reese. Mom sent me out with some of Harley's clothes and Dad's clothes. Andy. Okay, Mr. Reese. She laughed and jabbed her finger into his arm. Miss Appel. He jabbed her back. Touché. Work boots are back in the house. You can get those in the morning, and I have some pencils and paper for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. She handed everything to him. So, Lucy, you think this fear is a lot of false promises? She shook her head and ran her fingers through her dark hair. Oh, no, no, not at all. I think much of what is at the fair will happen. That's not the problem. Andy turned from the corral fence. What will happen? The television thing, seeing and hearing. I think people will watch like they listen to radio. Well, it will become much like radio, said Andy. But what you call the news will become biased entertainment. I like entertainment, but not on the news. The news should be reporting. People won't accept anything less. Lowell Thomas would be out of a job. Andy sat on the bench across from her. People will gradually accept most anything. Oh, you're as confident as my dad. He gets something in his gut and he never deviates from it. Sometimes he gets cynical, but he knows when he's right. Your dad knows the world. What about you? Lucy propped her elbows on the table. Me? I'm wide-eyed and I admit it. The promises at the fair of televisions, cars on superhighways, 
the city of tomorrow, are something I find fascinating. I understand. Andy visualized how things did change. What does Geiger say? Ah, funny you should ask, my friendly Iowa traveler. What does Geiger say? I have his three letters right here, so you can read them for your book. Professor Geiger challenges everyone to take responsibility and think when encountering technology. Like any indulgence, you need to know how and when to use it. You mean how we react to it? Yes, sir. Sir, he asked in the grinning light, are you scheduled to meet with Geiger? You'll see in that letter that he'll be at the fair off and on this summer, according to Mr. Davenport, the official that's supposed to coordinate everything up there. Geiger spends his time at the Soviet Pavilion or at the Court of Peace. I have a map of the whole place. Court of Peace? What's that, a judicial thing? No, silly, that's where the countries have their pavilions. FDR opened the fair from there. You don't seem to like Roosevelt, or at least you challenged everything on that fireside chat. My friends, she said, producing a surprisingly close approximation of Roosevelt's voice. Andy grinned. Well, that was good. I like FDR. Some things were necessary in this crisis. Had to be done by the government because of the slump. You agree with him? Asked Andy as he yawned. Oh, you're so bored, she said, yawning back. <laughs> bored, I'm not. I agree with Professor Geiger's idea of individual responsibility, making things happen. For instance, the Soviet pavilion would not even be here if Grover Whalen hadn't sold Joe Stalin on it. But I won't add that to my speech. It's getting late and it's been a long day. I really liked your speech, Lucy. It's dynamic, like FDR or JFK. JFK? Who's JFK? She asked. Just checking, just checking if you're listening. I thank you for your accolades. Good night, Mr. Andy, Miss Lucy. Have a good night's sleep with that bear in the back room. Lucy smiled and glanced at the side house. Porky has been known to wake the dead, but that's why he's in the side house. She started back toward the farmhouse, but she called out, Good night, Andy. I'm glad you came to town. Good night, Lucy. She again merged with the barnyard shadows reappeared at the screen door and slowly closed the outside door once she entered the darkened kitchen. Something about her intrigued him. Andy held her close as he headed back to the side house. The snoring sputtered like a portable gasoline generator. He set the clothes on a flowery upholstered chair, but he gravitated toward the oak desk and set down Geiger's materials. Geiger's letters were inside blue legal-sized envelopes and postmarked from New York, New York. Andy slid out the good quality linen paper, thick and pressed with a raised grain and watermark. Dr. Herman Geiger, Amesbury Union College, 64 Harpin Flat, New York, New York, May 14, 1939. Dear Lucy, congratulations and kudos for your essay. Looking ahead to the future is not an easy task. I was struck by your insightful impression thought of the life ahead of us. Technology is a wonderful gift to mankind, easing the burdens and drudgery of our forebears. You are right when you consider mankind's reaction to technology. I wonder what we will do when our leisure time expands. I am a little cynical because I truly believe man must be directed and focused in his efforts. Maybe focus is possible as chores ease and wonders expand. 
In my own lifetime, I have heard radio waves evolve from a few crude signals to a fireside chat from the President of the United States. Television is the next great change, and I greatly fear the impact. I believe it will be a technology that makes its participants passive viewers. What will we believe and what will we become? I wish I could become my protagonist, Anthony Corbett, in time in the future. Then I could merely travel ahead, return, and report back to you. Good luck at the fair, and congratulations on your intuition. Always listen to it. Sincerely, Dr. Herman Geiger. He stared at Geiger's letter for a few seconds in the yellow light and gently folded it back into the envelope. Geiger's ideas were incredibly compelling by their accuracy and his ability to gauge human tendencies. The professor seemed personable and gracious in his response to Lucy's initial letter. He picked up the second envelope, postmarked May 30, 1939. The inside letter looked identical to the first letter. Dr. Herman Geiger, Ainsbury Union College, 64 Hoppin Flat, New York, New York, May 29, 1939. Dear Lucy, thank you for your second letter and for your question about how we should react to radio broadcasts. I am elated that you have read my two books at your local library. Since I was forced to leave Germany in 1933 to escape the Nazi horrors, I have become more and more convinced that people will believe what they are told. I think radio is a prime example of this, and Hitler's and Dr. Goebbels' use of the medium and the film medium is a paramount example of my thesis. We are all human and want to believe many primal illusions. These mediums have credibility. When used responsibly, as with President Roosevelt's leadership during the hard economic times, these mediums flourish. But even Roosevelt tried to pack the Supreme Court with justices more akin to his New Deal programs. My point, Lucy, and to answer your question, is merely that we have to use the other side of our human equation. We must think about what we are doing. Hitler would not be in power if the people in Germany had not substituted rampant nationalism for human reason. Secondly, we must not become apathetic and let our leaders promote their own agenda in this new medium. Think and be aware, Lucy. It's a very simple formula. Sincerely, Dr. Hermann Geiger. P.S. Reading Dr. Ober's book was no easy chore. My colleagues at the University of Aiken tell me that Dr. Ober's dreams are being realized somewhere at a facility in Germany. Andy leaned back in the creaky oak chair. For the first time since the Enclave contact, he fully realized Geiger's brilliance and how his death might change the timeline, but he failed to comprehend how letting Hitler live was a good thing. Even with the Fuhrer dying in 1949 and Germany's empire destined for disintegration, Andy had to fully trust the Enclave before he acted. It's so fragile change one thing and you risk major changes later. He took out the last letter without folding the second letter. The letter was typed on a piece of white onion skin paper. Dr. Herman Geiger, Ainsbury Union College, 64 Hopin Flat, New York, New York, May 29, 1939. Dear Lucy, of course I will meet you at the New York World's Fair during the summer until I resume my duties at the college in September. I intend to devote my time to further the cause of social technocracy. I feel the best way to do that is to be a presence at the fair. 
When you arrive at the fair, look for me at the Soviet pavilion or near the Lagoon of Nations or in the Court of Peace itself. I do look forward to meeting you and having a discussion about the future. Yours truly, Herman Geiger. Andy's lids drooped as he lowered his head. He stood without placing the letters back in the envelope, pulled back the cock blanket, and attempted to blow out the flame in the oil lamp. Then he found the knob lowering the wick. He blew again and the flame went out. As the wick glowed red in the dark, he stripped down to his undershorts and fell back on the sheets. In the darkness, as the snoring continued, Andy reasoned the monkeys had the same information as the enclaves about Lucy being linked to Geiger. Without the fair's time capsule and Lucy's essay saved in various newspapers, the monkeys would never have known of the Geiger connection. As he drifted off, he understood that he had unconsciously developed an agenda to avenge Mariah's elimination, but he had to balance those hopes against trusting the Enclave's vision of the future. His task might be insurmountable if the monkeys had returned through the Aetis to 1939. I have seen the future. Chapter 12. Porky's undershirt bulged at the corners of his faded denim overalls. His arms were large, but he did not seem particularly strong, and Andy lugged most of the fence posts several hundred yards up the hill from the farmhouse. Porky sat on a pile of hand-honed posts and dragged a red handkerchief from his pocket. He dabbed his forehead and sweat-soaked thinning hair. Nothing like a good day's work to get the old ticker going. Andy balanced the next fence post in the hole and removed his cotton gloves. He walked across the brittle yellow grass and wiped his forearm on his own brow. Porky, sir, he said, holding his lower back. What's the matter now? Ah, oh, just an old back injury from the war. I gotta lose some weight. You were in the war? asked Andy, placing his work boot on the wood stack. Oh, I don't like to talk about it. Andy reached for the glass bottle, but Porky had drank most of the water. Let me get this straight. You're 35 years old? Yes, sir. And the war ended 22 years ago, which would make you 13 when it was over. Oh, I was brought in under an act of Congress allowing for younger men to serve their country. What unit were you with? asked Andy, imbibing the cool water. You couldn't spare some water for a guy, could you? Andy held the half-filled bottle to his lips and slowly lowered it. Porky, I've trucked down to that pump in the barnyard four times because you keep guzzling water. Well, it's hot out here. Take it said Andy, and he handed the jug to Porky. Across the flatter fields, John and the two Appel boys were on a red tractor moving toward the barn. Andy turned back to Porky. Porky, you drank it all again. I'll go back, I'll go back. Oh, man, said Andy, but I'm tired, you know. Tired? I wasn't the one snoring all night. I don't snore. Oh, yes, you do. The shadow knows. What? asked Andy, his throat parched. Lamont Cranston. Who's Lamont Cranston? The Shadow. Oh, okay. Look, we need some more water, said Andy. Don't you listen to the radio, Mr. Reese? Monday nights, The Shadow. So I have a choice, The Shadow or you're snoring. I ain't never heard myself snore, he said and gripped the straps of his overalls. 
because you were sleeping. Porky held the bottle with one hand and his back with the other hand as he struggled to his feet. He admitted a series of grunts and groans similar to the pig squeals Andy had heard in the backyard earlier that morning. Porky gazed down the hill. Like I say, when you help pull that artillery, you're putting yourself in great jeopardy. Andy rolled his eyes. We need water is what we need. We were all surrounded, and no one, nobody, nobody wanted to move that artillery piece. Right, said Andy, wiping his brow again. Ever been in combat, Mr. Reese? Andy. Andy, shells were exploding, and the threat of gas was in the air. Yeah, I bet it was. Porky handed the empty bottle to him, and he screwed the cap on the top. See, I had to pull that piece myself, and then I dislodged my disc. Under enemy fire, of course. Of course. Yes, sir. Okay, I'm heading down to the pump. Porky winced and rubbed his back. Would you do that for an old boy? Andy peered into his blue slit eyes. Why don't you get some rest, Pork? You're a good man, said Porky. You watch out for them trespasses. Them guys John drove out by shotgun. You got bums, you got rail riders that drift into town, but these guys were trespassers. Listen, Porky, I'm going down to the pump. Andy took a step toward the farmhouse, but stopped abruptly when he thought about the monkeys. What do those trespassers look like, Pork? You ever see them? Oh, they can run like hell, or at least they did when John fired his gun. Lucy saw him here, and in town. She did? Probably them bums riding the rails. You sure you don't want me to escort you to the pump? Rest your back, said Andy with a half smile. Good man, said Porky, holding his back as he shuffled across the straw grass. Andy gripped the glass bottle and headed down the hillside, but checked over his shoulder. Porky quickly moved his hand to his back and slowed his pace. Andy grinned. He liked Porky, despite doubting everything he said. But his reference to the trespassers was more credible than his other exaggerations. Near the bottom of the hill, Andy spotted Lucy and her mother at the clothesline. Her yellow sundress ruffled in the breeze like the clothes on the line. Andy swabbed his forehead again when he reached the yard. He passed John's red truck and veered left to the green metal pump next to the sidehouse fence. Lucy waved and continued plucking wooden clothespins from the line. He hesitated at the pump as Lucy and Mrs. Appel folded clothes in a wicker basket. The monkeys, if they were aware of Lucy and were really inside the electrical grid, had not killed her. He had to assume she was only a sideline player in this historical melodrama, but his own role in saving Geiger from death was a direct threat to the future monkey existence. Maybe they were looking for him, too. Lucy carried the wicker clothes basket toward the porch as Andy ratcheted the pump handle. Porky was not visible at the top of the hill, but Andy assumed he was resting comfortably under the tree. With the bottle on the dryer dirt, he cupped his hands and captured a sudden cool underground gush. He splashed his sun-dried face and cranked the handle again. This time he placed his head under the spigot. The cold water soothed and cooled his head as he doused his hair. He sucked the water from his hand-formed bowl and pulled back his head. Lucy stood above him, backlit to the sun, with her arms crossed. Well, there's a wash tub in the side house if you need a bath. 
Her angular face and dark eyes were sharp against the hazy blue sky. Then she smiled. Working with Porky can be a challenge. Challenge? The man spins everything. Spins? She asked and tilted her head. Oh, an old word. You know, he puts his own inimitable twist on it, said Andy as he stood. Plus, he keeps drinking all the water. Well, he's a growing boy, said Lucy, raising her dark brows. If he keeps on growing, you'll have to stick him in a horse trailer. She dropped the clothes basket as she laughed. He scooped up the water bottle as Lucy kept howling. Did I say something funny? You're a scream, Andy. And his stories. Wow, I've heard them all, she said, but her smile fell quickly. Porky and Dad grew up here in Hancock. He was laid off at the grain elevator. Five or six years ago, you couldn't find a job anywhere. Dad took him on. No salary at first, just room and board, meals. And things were bad. Weather was dry. Dad likes Porky and his stories. We all do. She squinted as she thought. Dad is very practical, and he knows what he wants. Always doing things to accomplish something, but he's got a big heart. Although he doesn't know it, or doesn't even show it. Andy screwed on the metal cap. Porky mentioned trespassers. Well, I thought I saw them in town, but I can't be sure. Her smooth forehead compressed to thin ridges. Not the usual drifters you see passing through town. Hair trimmed and clean-shaven. Dressed casually, pleated pants and white shirts, no ties. I first saw them outside the school. Young guys in their twenties. Twice. Once on a Thursday afternoon and then the next morning. And each time the radio in the gym was filled with static. Maybe they had transmitters that affected radio frequency. They were watching me. I told Dad and he, Nettie, and Harley came down to the school. The two guys didn't show up again, or, or at least not around the school. But they did show up again. Two more times. Out here during the day, a day like today. The same two guys wandering around the back cornfield. It was a Sunday and we had just gotten back from church. How long ago? week ago Sunday. I called Nettie and Harley outside and both trespasses disappeared into the corn. I didn't think anything of it at first. Last Monday in the middle of the night I saw three men in the low light. When they crossed the yard and headed toward my bedroom window I screamed. Dad was up in a second. The men ran but they were still in sight by the second barn when Dad fired his shotgun. He hit them? No, they got away. We saw the shoe prints in the dirt. Dad figures they brought a truck along the riverbank. We saw the treads, too. I must admit, Andy, I was scared, and I have been scared for the last week. See, Dad's been looking around town for somebody other than Hobart to stay with us during the trip. Well, the truck tracks along the river. I'd like to see where that was parked, said Andy. Well, maybe we can walk down there later. I don't think Brucey's coming out here today. Your boyfriend? Well, we went steady sort of this year. She tightened her brow again and stared up the hill. Then she smiled. Did you read Professor Geiger's letters? Yes, I did. She spoke faster now, and her voice was peppered with emotion. Can you actually believe he wrote back to me? You don't know unless you write a letter to somebody. I'll show you Dr. Goddard's letter, too. I thought Geiger would throw away my letters. Well, you did win a national contest. Andy leaned against the fence. He seems like a man who's passionate about his beliefs. It's as if he can see the future, she said, spreading her own hand outward. 
I read his novel, Time in the Future. This man, Anthony, he's able to enter a subway and come out in the future. And then he comes back. He sees the future. Just like the New York World's Fair can see the future. She shook her head. In a different way, Professor Geiger is a brilliant scientist, but he thinks about his place in the world rather than getting swept up by the new technology. But I don't think he's anti-technology. Nor do I. She jabbed his arm again. I'll check with my parents. Let's see if we can go down to the creek. You can see the tire tracks right there. Indy glanced up the hill. Well, I have to get back to the fence mending. You don't have to work for your keep. Dad told Mom this morning, just protect the girl, he said. Porky, now, he gets paid. Sort of. We wouldn't want Porky to overexert himself. She grinned. That is something none of us will ever have to worry about. I have seen the future. Chapter 13. This letter is from the office of the mayor of New York, said Lucy as she removed the legal-sized envelope from her marble notebook and slid her finger along the inside. She pulled out a heavy piece of linen stationery. The mayor of New York City is writing about my essay. Her mother walked ahead with John Appel. Read it, please, Lucy dear. Andy folded his arms as they all stopped. She waited for his approval. Okay, okay. Dear Miss Appel, on behalf of the City of New York and the World's Fair Corporation, I commend you on your essay, How We Face Tomorrow. It is a rarity, to say the least, that someone of your age is so closely tuned to the needs of the human race. Not only have you shown yourself to be a sterling representative of your generation, but an outstanding citizen of the United States of America. I look forward to meeting you at our grand exposition in the great city of New York. Sincerely, Fiorello H. LaGuardia, Mayor of New York. Andy shook his head. My God, I'm surprised you haven't written FDR. I have. Well, I'll check the mailbox, said John. Mrs. Appel and John held hands for a short time and trailed behind Ned, Andy, and Lucy. The sunlight found a pathway between the tree leaves creating shadowed patches across the grass blades and the rock-strewn creeks churning water. Andy described his afternoon with Porky at the fence and Lucy's laugh mixed with the sound of gurgling water. Did he tell you how many times he's been married? Well, we estimate six, said Ned. What? asked Andy, tilting his head in the gentle breeze. That we know of, said Lucy. He was married before he went to the war. Then he really was in the war, asked Andy. Sure, but nobody seems to know where for sure. And nobody remembers him enlisting, according to Dad. Dad went over for a year, said Lucy, her brow depressing as it did when she talked about something unpleasant. But she quickly smiled. So Porky must have been in the army, right, Nettie? Well, Dad, in his heart of hearts, will never say it, and... He really doesn't believe it, but he just lets Porky go on about it. You know what I mean, Andy? Sure. Lucy pointed to a tree cluster about a hundred yards down the rounded grass bank. Right down there is where I saw the truck tracks. An old Chevy truck, said Ned. I mean old. They had trouble starting it. We would have caught him if we hadn't come down on foot. You see the plates? I thought it was New York or New Jersey, but I'm not sure, replied Ned. Lucy quickly changed the subject. 
So Porky was married to Julia Comstock before he allegedly went overseas. Julia Cornstock? asked Andy. No, Comstock. But that was a null somehow because she and Porky were drunk and ended up married in Calhoun County. Then Porky says he got shipped out. Andy rolled his eyes as they approached the trees. And then there's his war record. Ned twisted his lips into a smile. Porky's got medals for bravery under fire. He said they got lost in a shipment back home. Andy was still laughing when he spotted the tracks in the hardened soil. He traced the treads across the dirt into the straw grass leading to a field with higher green grass. Then he looked up at both Lucy and Ned. Who were they? I'm sure it has something to do with my winning the contest. I know it does. The essay was published twice in the Des Moines Register and who knows where else. You said you read it in New York, Andy. Right. May I see your letter, Lucy? Yes, you may, Mr. Andy, she said, waving it in front of him. Office of the Mayor of New York, Fierro H. LaGuardia, behalf of New York, look forward to seeing you. This is remarkable, Lucy, said Andy. I heard LaGuardia is only five feet tall, said John Appel, catching up. That really doesn't matter. I guess he's a pretty good mayor. They followed the little river winding through the field. Shoe prints were pressed in the dry soil along the riverbank. Andy squatted down. Well, some of those shoes are ours, said John, as he and Mrs. Appel reached the tree cluster. Mrs. Appel adjusted her glasses, and John studied the imprints. We don't own anything like those big ones with the treads. What about Porky? I don't think Porky could navigate down here, said John, smiling, but then Mrs. Appel folded her arms. What, Mavis? Porky means well. Lucy smirked, but her mother raised her finger. Let's not be making fun of Porky. He tries. Lucy and Andy both smiled at each other, but Lucy spoke first. Like the fence posts? Andy checked the shoe prints again. Somebody's been on your property, that's for sure, John. My daughter writes an essay, and the government people stick their noses into my business. Like FDR, said Lucy as she folded LaGuardia's letter back in the envelope and stuck it next to a yellow pencil in her notebook. Well, I was a Hoover man. Herbert Hoover was from Iowa, and he fed people in Europe after the war. The war to end all wars, said Mrs. Appel. Well, tell that to Herr Hitler, said John. I just hope my boys don't have to go off to Europe. We're ready to fight, Dad. John's faraway, painful look made Andy hesitant about tampering with history. No one is ever ready to fight, Ned. Mrs. Appel latched onto John's arm as they strolled together up the riverbank. Ned picked up a few stones and skimmed them across the river's bumpy surface. Lucy motioned Andy down to the moist dirt incline and onto a rock protruding like an oversized potato into the river. She removed her shoes and let her feet dangle near the slow-moving water. In the evening haze, her face had a smooth pastel glow. I've come down to this rock since I was a little girl. Nice and quiet. Dunk your feet in the creek, Andy. Andy checked her feet half in the water. It's cool and invigorating, unless you have stinky feet. My feet are not stinky. She moved her lips upward and pinched her nose. I wonder. Oh, jeez, he said as he sat down and untied his work boots. When he removed the boots, she giggled. What's so funny? You? He peeled off his socks. Me? I knew I could get you to dunk your feet. Did anybody ever tell you you're... Yes, they have. 
She raised her brows and he stuck his feet into the cold water. Now doesn't that feel better? Next thing I know, you'll be telling me Geiger promotes cold water foot therapies. She leaned back and laughed. He might. Listen to you, he said, smiling and pointing at her. What? Oh, never mind. He gazed over the water ripples and across to the sunlit hill. For the first time since he arrived, relaxation overtook his thoughts like a gentle breeze tiptoeing across the fields and the river. He caught her staring. With a slight grin, a distant expression overtook her countenance. She gazed across the river and spoke in a softer tone. I can always get my thoughts together down here. I compose most of my essay right here on this rock. In this book, she held up her black and white marble notebook. I can see why. John and Mrs. Appel continued under the riverbank branches as Ned skipped more rocks across the creek's brisk current. Lucy maintained an outer smile and an inner glow. Who are your heroes, Lucy? She raised her dark brows and appeared to be taken off guard, but she answered quickly. Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis? How can you not know who Joe Lewis is? Ned mentioned him at the graduation, said Andy. Think of it. A Negro is heavyweight champion of the world, Andy. Who would have thought it? You do or you don't like that. Oh, I think it's great. All those people who think Negroes are inferior. Look at Jesse Owens. Hitler was enraged when he sprinted to victory in the Olympics. He was livid and left the stadium at the Berlin Games. I like people, Andy, who defy the status quo. It's all a matter of thinking. Professor Geiger says you need to assess the situation and simply ask whether it makes sense. Well, Geiger is from Germany. He doesn't like Hitler, does he? Yes, he is from Germany, but he isn't a Nazi. He was chased out by the Nazis. They hated his free-thinking philosophy. She rested her elbows on her knees. He left for Sweden and then Belgium to Dover, England in May of 1933 and then sailed to the United States in October of the same year. Professor Geiger was a proper member of the Prussian Academy before the Nazis reshaped it. Andy remained astounded that the Enclave even knew about Geiger. Geiger is a pivotal figure in history. Well, he sided with Bohr, Heisenberg, and Pauli on the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. But he's had deep discussions with Planck, Schrodinger, Lau, and Einstein. And you understand all that? Some of it. It's neither the classical idea of particles nor the classical idea of waves. Measuring causes the calculated set of probabilities to collapse to a value defined by the measurement. You can't be thinking in terms of how we see the world. Lucy, you need to make arrangements for college. Need money for that, Andrew. Although Professor Geiger said he could help me. We'll make it a point to talk to him when we get to the fair. You have a great mind, you know that? I'm always thinking, to the point where my mother and father are sure I'm absent-minded or forgetful. I'm really not. I'm just thinking. Andy crossed his arms. And what does your thinking tell you about me? Hmm, you could be spying on me. Andy cupped his hand and whispered, Don't let it get around. She grinned and then laughed. Well, you seem like you're from a faraway place. And where might that be, Miss Appel? She squinted and shook her head as she spoke. Heck, I don't know. In the wild blue yonder somewhere. I'm just Andy Reese, and I find the idea of the world of tomorrow, as promoted at the fair, strangely compelling. 
Lucy perked up. Okay, smart guy, if you're really an astronomer, name the stars coming up out there. I know my constellations. Kind of. That's the swan. It's a summer constellation. Deneb, and the one you can barely see is Albiero. What about the bright one right next to it? Vega and Lyra, absolute magnitude of plus 5.0. Distance from Earth, 26.5 light years. She turned toward the river. Good Lord, maybe you're just a stargazer. At heart, as you are. Right answer. She rolled her tongue along her cheek. Hmm. Did I pass the test or will there be a written exam later? I'll think about it, Dr. Reese. Nobody calls me doctor. She laughed and peered into the murky water. About a half a minute passed before she looked up. Dad said that your sister died. Her name was Mariah. Sorry. Death never makes any sense. Andy pursed his lips. She just shouldn't have died so young. You know, Lucy, I used to have volumes of literature that would help me make sense of the world. Where is it now? At your house? You know, it's gone. It's a long story. Poe wrote a poem about Lenora, but he mentioned her in The Raven also. It reminds me of Mariah, about the angels and Lenore. As he leaned back, he spotted something in the water. He pushed his hands against the rock and stood. Under the water ripples, a fuzzy orange patch was held back by a fallen branch about three meters offshore. You see a fish? asked Lucy, splashing her feet. What the heck is that? Probably a whale, she laughed. Glowing? He put his hands on his hips as fear crept through his body. Looks like it's come downstream. Well, that is very strange, said Lucy, now on her feet. Lucy rounded her index finger and thumb and produced a shrill whistle. Ned, his arm cocked, held a stone in his hand. Ned, call Dad! What's the matter? She put on her shoes and then cupped her hand to her mouth. Something in the water! Get Dad! Andy's heart thumped. The luminescent sphere, about the size of a baseball, buzzed in continuous movement. In this time period, only radioactive material would actually glow. John and Mrs. Appel trotted behind Ned along the riverbank. Andy took Lucy's hand and pulled her onto the grass. Lucy's hands quickly surrounded her mouth as she called out, Over here! Fireflies! Glowing in the water! John steadied his wife along the grass. Lucy, what are you talking about? It's in the water, John, shouted Andy. John stopped and peered into the river. What the hell is that? You want me to dive in and get it? asked Ned. Andy clung onto a tree curving over the river. His stomach brewed with an intense excitement. Maybe the monkeys did blow out the transformers back in Des Moines. Maybe they had entered an electrical grid. Maybe it was nothing. It may be radioactive, said Lucy. It has all the elements of a radioactive substance. You mean like uranium, asked John. More sophisticated, said Lucy, glancing at Andy by the tree. Then we need somebody from the government to come down here and handle this, added Ned. Well, I think it's just a utility pole insulator with something inside. I'm, I ain't dealing with any more government people, stated John. Maybe a college science department, said Lucy. She opened her marble notebook and began writing. Crazy, said John. 
Well, maybe we should call Hobart, asked Mrs. Appel. John slowly turned. Now, Mavis, Hobart couldn't find his way home if you brought him out here. As the afternoon shadows grew longer, the object was dense with a never-moving, heightened orange swirl, like blood cells under a microscope. Knowing that the monkeys actually existed back in this time and inside this insulator made Andy reluctant to summon anyone out here. Lucy was still moving her yellow pencil over the notebook as Andy sat next to her. What did you write? She looked up in the twilight. I described it from the physical to conjecture about its own nature. Do you always write about things? I have a science teacher named Mr. Stanton. He taught us over and over to gather the facts and create a hypothesis. What do you think it is, Andy? asked Lucy, leaning toward him. Andy spoke with an untruthful authority. I'm not sure, but I don't want to be exposed to radiation. That's not good. Lucy stepped closer to him. That's what happened to Madame Curie. Andy was taken aback again by Lucy's overall knowledge, but was bothered she was going nowhere with it. That's correct. And what is your hypothesis? She read what she wrote in the notebook. Then she shook her head. It behaves as if it were alive. It appears electronic. It would seem not to be created by man, but it is dangerous, question mark. I don't know the answer to that. Fascinating. Then he turned with his hands on his hips. Is there an electrical junction station near here? The nearest one I know of is upstream, if that's what you're thinking. You know what Dad said about it being a pole insulator? The creek flows by the rail yard and then through town. Once you get outside Hancock, maybe a mile or so, there is a station that connects the other lines. What about the rail yard and the electrical lines? That yard has lines coming from all over, Andy. Lines that follow the rails. Every one of those poles has insulators. She took out her notebook again. It's almost dark. I'm surprised you can see. What are you writing now? The question, Mr. Reese, well, there are many questions. How those fireflies got inside that insulator, if it is an insulator, as well as the composition of the fireflies. One is no doubt related to the other. I doubt anyone else will even figure that out. She placed the pencil at the binding and closed the notebook. Her brow creased in the dim light. You may be right. Be assured, more people will be involved. Higher-ups. I doubt we'll ever hear about it again. You mean the government of the United States? She nodded. How would you destroy that insulator if you were the government? I think water, which would seem to be an anomaly because the insulator is in the water. Yet, if they're sealed, somebody shielded them because the insulators are hollowed out. One of my friends did her science fair project on electricity. So either they had help or those fireflies are intelligent. The insulator floated downstream. I don't think it was planned because the water would have shorted them out if they are electrical in nature. Is that what you wrote in your notebook? Oh, no, not yet. You make a good point, a missing insulator. Where do you think these things came from, Lucy? I think a university or college. Maybe the government. Maybe it's some kind of plasma. But you need electrodes or a power source to create plasma. How does it sustain itself in there? Well, I think you're on the right track. Wait, she said, raising her index finger. What if that plasma got inside the electrical lines? I can't connect the dots as to how it got inside the insulator. Andy smiled at her ability to isolate the problem with the information she had. What are you grinning at, Andy Reese? You? Well, I only have so much to go on. 
That's why I'm smiling. Let's go back. By the time we get to the house, you probably will have figured out how your fireflies leap from the electrical lines into the insulator. I don't know. That's a tough one. Clinging onto his arm, she peered into the blackening water. More tire tracks were visible on the soft soil. Frogs croaked in the evening air, and other insects produced an incessant drone across the fields. Maybe someone else had seen that insulator. As they started back to the house, there was no doubt that the monkeys had chased him back in time. And he was even more certain that Geiger must survive. But as he gazed back over the fields to the distant creek, he knew he would have to crack that insulator and destroy the monkeys inside. Beyond the fields and over the little ridge, the sunset produced a gray-smeared sky. Andy stood in the higher grass behind the barn and counted the stars one by one as each jewel filled the celestial dome. Occasionally a dog would bark in the distance, and twice he heard trains heading to some unseen destination. He was unsure how he would destroy the insulator. As the land around him gradually darkened and the air cooled, he imagined the luminescence back at the creek, magnifying a minute motion behind the insulator glass. Andy! Andy! called Lucy from the barnyard. She wore a wide-brimmed straw hat, a blue jersey, and jeans. The astronomer is being an astronomer. I'm thinking more about that insulator than I am the stars. How did you know I was out here? Porky. Oh. She put her hand on his shoulder. Mr. Cogswell gave Dad the number of a professor in Chicago. Dad called from town. The professor agreed to come down here and study whatever it is. As a matter of fact, he was pretty excited about it. That's what I was thinking about. What can he do? asked Sandy. Somehow, I have to destroy that thing. Well, maybe the professor has some ideas. I certainly want to discuss it with him. Andy wondered what would happen to the monkeys at high temperature. I understand. Her face was gray-toned in the subdued light. Mom says to tell you she has a big piece of apple pie waiting for you and a glass of cold milk. Well, that's the best news I've heard all day. How do you keep it cold? We do have an ice box, Andy. She took his hand for a second and led him back around the barn. A few times he glanced over his shoulder back to the creek kept telling himself he needed to get rid of those monkeys. The very source of the restricted future, the monkeys, enter the electrical grid in Des Moines as they hover inside electrical insulators. Incrementally, Andy and Lucy become closer. And ahead, the trip to New York and the fair offer not only the promise of the future of the fair, but a change in the course of the timeline that created the monkeys in that distant time. I'm Robert P. Fitton, looking out the windows, looking at the electrical insulators for the monkeys. Join me next week for episode four of I Have Seen the Future. my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.